Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Today's episode has been sponsored by Serial Box. Serial Box delivers addictive book content in short listen or read installments designed to fit into today's fast-paced mobile lifestyle. Switch between listening and reading with a single click, picking up right where you left off. Learn more at SerialBox.com, S-E-R-I-A-L-B-O-X.com. I'm excited to be here today with Falgani Kothari, who's the author of five novels and many stories, some unconventional love stories, some fantasy tales, all influenced by her South Asian heritage and her expat experiences. Her latest book, The Object of Your Affections, comes out February 19th. 2019, very soon. An award-winning classical and ballroom dancer, originally from Mumbai. She currently lives in New York. So welcome, Falgini. Thank you. Thank you, Zabi, for having me here. It's my pleasure to be here and talk about the object of your affections. So how did you come up with the idea for this novel? And can you tell listeners what it's about? Okay, so what it's about is two best friends. And, you know, when you have a certain relationship with a best friend, You kind of, you know, sometimes take it to a different level. So we have these two friends. One is married, lives in New York City. The other one is kind of lost because she's a widow and she's just, she has a lot of issues back at home in Mumbai and she's just immigrated to New York and try and see whether she can have a life here. And so the friend who's married, Paris, she and her husband are trying to have a baby through surrogacy. And she kind of has this bright idea that why not have Naira, my best friend, be the mother of my child or, you know, be the gestational surrogate because that's someone who she trusts implicitly and she just lacks that relationship. And as you will read in the novel, as the chapters go on, you realize why she wants such a close relationship with the gestational surrogate. So that's basically the context of the book. And how did I get the idea for it? A couple of things happened. One, that this is the second book with Graydon House. Mm -hmm. So I already had My Last Love Story, which came out in 2018 in January. And that had two guys and a girl as the protagonists. So I kind of wanted to mirror that and have two women and a man in this book. But I didn't want, you know, the the typical love trope, like two women fighting over a man. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's so done and, you know, just... That's a trope that I don't really like. Right. And also one of the things that happened was that I know a couple of women who have chosen to have a child through surrogacy. Mm-hmm. So I was speaking to them and I was, you know, kind of fascinated by how they came to that point where they needed to have a child through a surrogate. Plus, I have a lot of family in India. It, it's it's actually very common over there for sisters-in-law to have a child for, you know, someone who cannot. Mm -hmm. Like you can have one sister not doing it for the other or two sisters doing it for the other. And that whole complication of relationship, not just having a child for someone else, but watching that child grow up Mm -hmm. in another household that is so close to yours. You know, you have family vacations together, you'll have, you know, things together. And you know, that whole dynamic of this child has two mothers Mm -hmm. and who gets precedence over, you know, what part of their lives. Mm -hmm. So that 
whole thing just fascinated me and that kind of came into this book you know became one of the ideas and then one of the other things that i had come across was an article where movie stars apparently are choosing to have children through surrogacy more and more mm-hmm. okay for various reasons mm-hmm. and one of the things was like in india it's become huge because i think the surrogacy industry is huge there mm-hmm. that i read an article about these two bachelors these men who had children through surrogacy without finding a life partner you know and i was like wow they don't even want to wait to find whatever you know a life partner a woman whoever and they were ready to be fathers and they just took you know that decision in their hands and i just kind of thought it was fascinating so i've kind of played with all of those themes in this book and yeah that's what happened and that's how i came up with <laughs> This will sound like a stupid question, but in India, are there different rules about surrogacy, different laws? Like here, I know it's like state by state, they have different rules. Like, is it allowed? Just So I don't know how much you know about India, but over (laughs) there, I, I don't think rules matter much. Okay. It's more, you know, like if you want to do something and if you're desperate to do something, you kind of find a way to do it, whether legally or illegally. However, until I think last year, there were weren't such stringent or strict laws i mean it hadn't yet reached the point where there were strict laws or implementable laws okay and so it was all over the place you have literally you have surrogacy farms uh happening in you know certain rural villages in india where you have a hospital and you have like hundreds of women there who you know because they are maybe below the poverty line mm-hmm. and this is one way to make money for their family they just there as mothers to be used as and how people with money can use them however i think this year they've made the laws very strict in the sense you have to like the potential or the intentional parents have to have certain things how do you put it like they need to pass certain yeah, like prerequisites yes yeah. prerequisites yeah that's the word for them to be able to Got you know it. go through yeah. the process of finding a surrogate or even yeah. you know going to one of these agencies that will connect them to surrogates it's such a neat so, it's such a neat theme to put in a book because it's <laughs> like i feel like we're at like the forefront of this whole almost not movement but like explosion of, you know, surrogacy, what does it mean? And, you know, it's just so neat. Like, what does it mean to be a mom, really? Like, do you, is it your child that, you, you know? It, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, <laughs> so good, good idea. <laughs> exactly. And this whole onus that women have of being mothers, of being, you know, the carriers of the next generation or, or the carriers of humanity, why is it just, you know, why is the burden just on them? Mm-hmm. I understand that women are the only you know, species that, you know, the female species is is the one that can actually, you know, get pregnant and have a child. Yes, that's absolutely not negotiable. Right. However, what is this whole thing that, you know, only women can be nurturers or only women have a biological clock or mm-hmm, only mm-hmm. they have this instinct of nurturing or raising children. I mean, men have it equally. Like between my husband and me, he is the better parent. Mm-hmm. He deals with children better than I do. Mm-hmm. I'm an only child. So I kind of was a little, you know, like, oh, what is this? <laughs> you know, who, what is this baby? Why does it poop so much? You know, <laughs> whereas my husband, and I remember this right from the beginning, he 
Like the minute he got home, once we had our first child, he'd be, you know, completely taken, you know, he'd just make me sit down on the side or like, go to sleep, you have your rest and I'm going to take care of the child till I leave the next morning (laughs) to go back to the office. Exactly. So I don't remember, except for him waking me up to breastfeed, I don't remember, you know, taking care of my babies from, I think, 11 at night to the next morning, 7 o'clock. And he'd be the one who was awake and he'd be the one if they were crying, he'd pick them up. And so his instinct, I feel, is stronger than mine. Mm -hmm. It's just that he can't have babies and I can. Right. Well, physically. Physically. I mean, he's still a parent. He's still a parent. parent. Exactly. So why do we put fatherhood on on a backseat when Mm -hmm. it should be equal? Like we... We're talking about equality of the genders. So this is one way of where they can also be equal. Like fatherhood is equally important. Yeah. I'm not sure every father has that instinct, but I'm also not sure every mother, mother has, has that, that instinct. instinct. So it yeah. de- I think it's more Depends case, case dependent. Exactly. But um, anyway, all super interesting <laughs> topics. So you started your book really about friendship and about mm-hmm. the ways in which friends disappoint each other and holding grudges and you know one person can go to the other person's wedding and you know things just build over time. Yeah. Like, do you feel like you've had a friend disappoint you in this way? Like, Were you tapping into something that happened to you? I have disappointed friends. It's not happened the other way around. I remember this one friend I had in high, before high school, I think it was in middle school or somewhere. I, we were very close. And the thing is that I tended to have a lot of friends, whereas she had fewer friends. And she banked on me or she kind of put all of her eggs in my basket. Mm-hmm. And she expected things of me, which I couldn't fulfill because I had a busier social life than she did. So I remember her disappointing her to the point where she wouldn't speak to me for a few months and then I had to make up stuff and then after a point it just got too much for both of us Mm -hmm. because, you know, she couldn't keep on expecting things and I couldn't keep on delivering. Right. So we kind of just naturally or gradually just separated and went our ways. But yeah, I remember those tensions and I and I see a lot of that in a lot of my friends' friends. Like I kind of, I think I have a very unique personality in the sense I don't expect things. Mm-hmm. And then I don't want people to expect things from me. Mm, mm-hmm. But I see that happening with, you know, between friends. Like you, not so much as disappoint. I mean, you you get touchy about certain things because you're so close. Right. And and then it just escalates. Yeah. I feel like the demands have to be sort of equal. Equal, yeah. I had, have had one friend who needed me to like yeah. listen to her on the phone about everything for like hours. I shouldn't even say this. But anyway, I didn't have the time to do that. And I felt terrible about it. And after a while, you just have to be like, I'm so sorry. I can't give you what you need. Yeah. You know, fine. I don't know. Anyway. Absolutely. Well, anyway, hopefully she's not listening. But I'm sure she's not because anyway. <laughs> so I thought getting a glimpse into what it was like for Naira, am I pronouncing Naira? Mm-hmm. So she was like a wife in the aftermath of a husband's financial scandal of sorts. And that was so interesting how she dealt with the shame, the the logistics of it almost, the repaying of the debts, the selling off of the art, like the whole thing. How did you come up with that character and that aspect of the character, the sort of like Ruth Madoff of Asia type of? So a couple of uh, inspirations for that character. One, I come from a business family. It's my father, my grandfather, my father-in-law, my husband, everyone is in business. You know, the whole, actually the whole extended community is in the same business. And you see a lot of ups and downs in businesses. And then 
as a wife and as a daughter and as a daughter-in-law, you see that what affects them mm-hmm. on a certain level, it comes back home and it affects us also, mm-hmm. right? And I see it with a lot of, like growing up in that environment, it's very easy to pictureize what happens if things go really wrong because even one loss affects us mm-hmm. on a certain level. You know, there's tension in the house and you can feel it. So what happens if there's a massive loss? You know, what if we reach like rock bottom? So it was easy to mm-hmm. picture in the sense. Secondly, I'm obsessed with the good wife or I was. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and it just fascinated me. Like, why would she stay with him? Yeah. You know, and her whole... And I felt she handled it beautifully, Mm -hmm. but you just feel so horrible for her, you know, like, oh my God, that is a woman. Like, you don't know whether to get angry at her for turning a blind eye because she wasn't stupid. She knew exactly what was going on. Right. And still she chose to stand by him. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when you're in a relationship and if you're in a good relationship and either spouse does something that's not really kosher Mm -hmm. or at least the world doesn't think it is, you have to justify it in your head that it was. Otherwise, you're not going to survive that. Right. So that is, I think, what I've tried to show with Naira's character is, you know, that love is kind of blind Mm -hmm. and you have to make it blind or... You know, there are very few people who are like Paris who can see things for what they are and still manage to sort of, you know, hold on to that relationship. Right. Usually people, you know, if you're disappointed in one thing, you're going to just take it, you know, your whole relationship will fall apart because of that. Right. So that's, I kind of had that juxtaposition between the two friends. Like one is like, okay, you know what, throw anything at me and I'll deal with it. And then you have Naira who was like, no, 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 I need to live in a bubble. I need to live in this illusion Mm -hmm. or I won't be able to survive. Interesting. And then you also gave us a glimpse into Naira's relationship with her own parents when they showed up and she was eight months pregnant. Am I giving up? I'm not giving anything away. (laughs) She'd been afraid to tell them about her pregnancy. And when she finally did, her dad goes, what have you done, you stupid girl? And then her mom asked, you know, who would ever marry you after that? And I boldly responded, you know, a good man. But she's like, it doesn't even matter because I have no plans to remarry. So then they basically, you know, she's basically emotionally expelled. Tell me about that, the loneliness she must feel about that and sort of the sense of parental disapproval. Like I was reading this and I was thinking, gosh, I'm 42 and I still am like, mom, listen to, read my article. And like, do you know what I mean? Like I'm still like so desperate for parental approval that to feel that they've just completely turned their backs on her. I don't know. That's just, that's a, that's intense. That's intense. And that's, I think, a very common trait in Indian families because your parents or your elders hold such a strong position in your life. And we're kind of raised to listen, Mm -hmm. like listen to your elders. They have the wisdom. They've lived more years than you have. So understand, don't make the same mistakes. If they're telling you something, if, you, if they're telling you don't touch the fire, why do you need to touch the fire? Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're, uh, Indians are raised in that kind of environment where you are sort of conditioned to listen mm-hmm. and to want that parental approval. And it goes further than that. I think we as humans... I mean, you see it on social media now and we're constantly looking at our social media and checking how many likes we have, how many, you know, hearts we have on our posts. So that approval, Mm -hmm. it kind of 
I think as human beings, we're desperate for that, not just from our parents, from anyone. Yeah. We want approval from our friends, from right. our, you know, all our relations, from our bosses, mm-hmm. from everything. So I think we're kind of conditioned to sort of have that, no, what you're doing is right. Mm-hmm. And when you don't, it's horrible. Yeah. It's, doesn't feel good. <laughs> Did I answer your question? Yeah, that was okay. great. Perfect. Tell me a little about, we'd started to talk about this and I was like, no, save it for later. But tell me about writing in India versus writing here. You got your start writing there and published a couple books there. And then now you've had two books come out in the US. What has it been like, this transition? I started publishing there first. Mm-hmm. However, I started writing in the US. I never grew up thinking I'd be a writer. I had no aspirations to be a writer. I didn't think I had the patience to be a writer. Like, who's going to sit down and write 4,000 words? No, 4,000. 400,000. No, 400, yeah, 400,000 yeah, yeah. 400, words, right? Who, who has the time or the patience to do that? And in India, like, I spent the first nine years of my marriage there after after growing up and mm-hmm. whatever, getting married. So I was, I think, about around 26 or 27 when we moved to the U.S. Mm-hmm. But until then, in India, you have the life that you lead there is very different from the life that I lead here in the sense that there were so many family obligations. My days were packed. They were mm-hmm. packed with either, you know, the children or, you know, someone's getting married or someone's... The families are huge there. So your time essentially is just to socialize. Whereas in the US, I, after a point, you know, when your children are reasonably old, like once they reach middle school, you have a lot of time on your hands, especially if you're a homemaker. If you don't have a job outside the home, you're doing nothing, right? From the time that they you drop them to school and maybe pick them up in the afternoon or even later because they have after school activities. And my mother is the complete opposite of me. Like, even though she worked from home, she is a busybody to another extent. She can't <laughs> sit still, even for half a second. And she saw that I was kind of, you know, not doing anything and getting crotchety because of it. Mm. And she's like, no, this can't go on for long. You need to do something. And so I started looking at online classes to take, you know, thinking that maybe I'll, you know, go and get my degree or, you know, just... Mm-hmm. And because I love reading and because I love learning so much, I thought that would be a good fit for what I needed to do. And then I uh, stumbled on this class called Romance Writing Secrets, which was a short, cute course. And I think that just clicked something in me. And I was like, oh, my God, you know what? I not only love reading stories, making up stories in my head for my children or even for myself when I was growing up. And because I'm a dancer... The Indian classical dancing is kind of storytelling in one way, in a different medium. And because I was always immersed in stories, the the story starts just coming out of me, you know, the creative aspect of it. And I was like, hmm, okay, this is something I can do from home, which I apparently love. And so that that's how I just started writing. And I started writing accidentally. So I didn't understand the industry. Mm. Didn't understand once you write a book, what happens after. And that's why I think I went with India because I think that was an easier way for me to get into the industry as opposed to New York Publishing because, one, I got an answer from India faster than here. And, you know, when you have your first book and your first manuscript and your first yes, you kind of jump on it. 
course. Because you, you know, you don't yeah. wait and you don't sit and weigh things or anything. So that's kind of how it worked out that I had my first two books out there. And then through that and then through the years and then when you're building more and more contacts, you come into touch with more and more people in the industry. And that's how I got my contracts for the next two books in the U.S. Interesting. Yeah. And now do you feel like you have a grasp on the industry? Of the industry, yeah. I kind of do. But the thing <laughs> is, it changes every month. Yeah. So, you know, yes, you have a grasp on the industry, but I think you have to stay on your toes because it kind of changes every month. Because I know 10 years ago when I was, you know, after my first manuscript, when I was approaching agents and I was approaching editors in the U.S., I don't think diverse books or uh, own voices was a big deal then. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they really didn't know where to place me. Right. Whereas now they absolutely know and absolutely understand where my books would, you know, fit mm -hmm. in, in into the whole scheme of things. That's awesome. So you said in an interview that I read with USA Today that you work best in the dark of night by the light of your laptop. And you said that not being fully awake brings out your most creative side, which I found so interesting <laughs> because, like, I cannot function at night at all. Is that still true? Is that how you do it? I do. For the first draft, yeah. I need to be half asleep. Really? Yeah. <laughs> because I have a very technical brain. I'm a very linear thinker. Okay. So my editing, when I'm fully awake, mm -hmm. I won't be able to just write. I'll keep going back and editing mm -hmm. all of my words. And that kind of breaks your creativity, your flow and everything. So I need to be half asleep to do that. Wow. To just get it out. Yeah. And then the next morning you go over it and you polish it up. That's amazing. <laughs> What did you want to be when you were little, when you grew up? You said you didn't ever wanted to be a writer. I'm just Astrophysicist. curious. Astrophysicist. No way. Yes. <laughs> I'm completely a STEM girl. I mean, I love math. I love the sciences. I love, I, I just love knowing how this world works mm -hmm. on a physical level and a metaphysical level. So I always thought I'd do something in philosophy with physics. But the thing is, the way my household structure was or the way I was raised was I, I'm from a very not a very conservative household, but there were certain expectations of getting married at a certain time, of not, you know, when I expressed a desire to come to the U.S. to study, to get my undergrad or my master's in astrophysics, my father was like, no, you're not leaving India. You're not, what, how much ever you want to study, there's no restriction on that, but whatever you want to do, you have to do it in Bombay. Mm. You cannot leave. You have to stay at home and do it. That's it. You should read... Now, this author named Nell Freudenberger has a yeah. book coming out soon called Lost and Wanted. And the main character is a physicist. Okay. And it's all about like astrophysics okay. and all of that. Okay. Anyway, I'm going to give, I'll yeah. show you it in a minute. But that's really interesting. I mean, it's not too late, you know, to take that up. No, I don't think <laughs> I can go back to college anymore. No, no way am I giving tests. No way. Um, tell me more about this dancing passion you have. I don't know anything about that whole world. Tell me about it. So I've always been a dancer. Mm -hmm. And as I said, my mother has been a busybody and she had... Like little girl dancer type of thing? Like little five girl years dancer. Okay. So, so, you know, that whole thing thing about when you throw your two-year-old into the pool yes. and just, you know, expect them to float mm -hmm. or paddle. I did not so, do that. But okay. yes, you didn't I, do I've that. heard okay. of it, yes. Yes, so that analogy, take it in dancing. My mother just threw me on the stage and she was like, just stay there and wiggle your butt. So she was a big dancer. She was a big dancer. She's an artist, you know, a creative person in her own right. And she did a lot of, she organized a lot of shows for our community. And they were called dance ballets. So you have, you know, it's sort of like a musical, but on stage, 
Okay, it's like Broadway mm-hmm. in India. Yep. So you have, you know, a story happening and then you have, in between you have dances and, you know, all of that. So she threw me on the stage at two years of age and I was supposed to be, you know, the main character's little kid. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think that's just started my whole career in on stage and in dancing. And then I did Indian classical dancing. I did Kathak, which mm-hmm. is one of the classical dances of India is Kathak. It's come from the Mughals. And I did that for about 12, 13 years. And yeah, so I'm good at dancing. I love dancing because it's a form of expression, which I think because it's so physical, I like that. Mm-hmm. And then the last seven or eight years, I've been ballroom dancing in New York. Yeah. Wow. That's so cool. You should go on one of those shows. Oh, no, no, no. I'm yeah. not that good. So I used to dance professionally on my Kathak and in India. We used to have a lot of shows that we did, not just in different venues, but also for, you know, competitions. Mm-hmm. Like my dance troupe won, I think, third place in the World Folk Dance Festival when I was 16 or 17 years old. And this was in Spain. And yeah, that was an unbelievable experience. I bet. (laughs) So what do you think are some of the best and worst parts about writing fiction here in New York City? I don't think there are any worst parts. The best is that I, I I can't imagine myself ever being a writer in India. Because of, you know, what I said, that I had a lot of family obligations. I didn't really have time for myself. So New York gave me that because it gave me the quiet that I need to write. Mm -hmm. It gives me the space. And also being so close to the industry in New York publishing, like there's so many events that happen. You know, all of that sort of encourages and keeps you on your toes Mm -hmm. also and also inspires you to keep on doing it because it's just available at your fingertips. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's a downside to being in New York and writing. Good. Excellent. (laughs) Are you working on another novel now? I'm working on a novella. So I belong to this Facebook group, Fiction from the Heart, where 12 authors, mostly romance and women's fiction, who we sort of built a safe space for writers and readers to be in and, you know, exchange information about our books and, you know, sort of mm-hmm. keep ourselves entertained and, you know, it's kind of like a book club online. Mm-hmm. And so we've decided 11 of us are going to take out an anthology, the Fiction oh. from the Heart Second Chances Anthology. In, in I think it comes out in June. So my novella, it's called Starstruck. Take two. So it's about a Bollywood star and a publicity powerhouse for movie stars and, you know, their second chance at romance. Ooh, (laughs) excellent. Do you have any advice for aspiring writers? Absolutely. Eavesdrop and don't just, yes, participate in the world, but participate to the extent where you're not just witnessing or observing but you're actually immersing yourself in it because don't just see the snowfall you know, taste it on your tongue because all of that will help you write and build your scene and enhance uh, your voice, I guess. So yeah, so pay attention. Pay attention to the world and immerse yourself in it. I love that. Don't just watch the snow stick your tongue out. That's awesome. (laughs) Love it. Well, thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you so much for having me, Zibi. This was so much fun. Oh, yeah, for me too. (laughs) Thanks. Today's episode was sponsored by Serial Box, S-E-R-I-A-L-B-O-X.com, SerialBox.com, delivering addictive book content in short listen or read installments. Thanks to Ryan and Steve at Texture Sound for the audio editing and mixing. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Mm-hmm.